With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode of the Made for This podcast. Today's guest is actually someone who's been on the show before. If you remember, Andy Crouch was on talking about how we can use our phones in smart ways and not let them rule our lives, but we have him back today and this interview with Jenny and Andy is just amazing. Get your notebook out, your pencil so you can take notes. I think what he has to say today about this season and coronavirus and where we're at as a church and as people might be a little bit shocking to you, but it's so good. It's so hopeful and it's going to give us a vision for how to do this season better. Andy is a partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, and he's the author of a few amazing books, including The TechWise Family. Well, Andy, it's so good to have you. And what I'm excited about talking about is really just perspective as we deal with this. I feel like you have given us, Zach and I specifically, and a lot of people, because those articles you you wrote really went viral. You have given all of us a lot of perspective. So let's talk about what you see as unique about this moment in time. And I know there's not much about our lives that haven't changed. So what do you see, though, specifically to do with the church and business? And as Christians, how do we view this time? Oh man, there there is so much. I mean, the first thing is how long of a duration this is going to be in terms of how it changes all of our lives in really profound ways. In one of the pieces that we wrote at Praxis, we talked about the difference between a, a blizzard, a whole season called winter, and something we call the little ice age. I think initially a lot of us felt sort of like maybe not in Texas. I don't know what the equivalent is in Texas, but (laughs) in the North, a snow day, right? You know, a blizzard that maybe for three or four days, things are shut down, but then they go back to normal. It's dawning on everyone, especially, I mean, even as we speak, it's not going to be April 1st, it's going to be April 30th. Who knows how long those seasons get extended, but this is a matter of weeks, not days. But then actually the effects of this on all of us in so many ways are going to be years, not weeks. And I think this is what most of us have not really absorbed, is how long our lives are going to change in really very significant ways. And what that implies for churches, for nonprofit organizations, for especially small businesses, this is a time of really rapid reset of our expectations, not just for the next few days or weeks, but for the next couple of years. I feel like I should ask you a question. And I think I know what you're going to say. Like, should we talk about the bad news or the good news first? So why don't we talk about the bad news first? Because I know that this creates I mean, right now, if I were to think about why most people I know are anxious and why I get anxious, it largely has to do with the finances. Yes, there are some elderly people in our lives that we worry about, but they're pretty well quarantined and, you know, (laughs) taken care of right now. 
I think the people I know, they're worried they're not going to be able to provide for their kids this year. So could we talk just a little bit? That's one reason I wanted to have you on. I guess what I want to say is you gave me some bad news in one of the articles. You said this could be, you know, 12 to 18 months of not having large group gatherings. And we're an organization that has events. But when I read that, I was able to go back to my organization and start to make plans that shifted everything about our year. And so it felt like a gift. So I'm prefacing to all of you with this, that this bad news is helpful and it actually helps us lead our families. It helps us lead our organizations. It helps us set our own expectations so we can make better decisions for the future. So bear with the bad news. I promise you it's going to lead to a good place. So let's talk about the bad news first. I mean, let me give you a a kind of a tactical view of it. And then I think the, the deeper reality, which is really good news in the midst of any bad news we'll ever get in our lives. But let's start with the tactical reality. Starting on April 1st, my family's on a budget that assumes my own salary goes to almost nothing for, for two years because I make almost all of my living through events and through writing books. But I'm not sure how many people are going to be buying any of the books I wrote BC before coronavirus. And I don't know if they'll buy my next one. I hope so. We are planning on a, a really significant change in our in our own circumstances at home. The organization I work for, Praxis, we we also, everything we do is by gathering people. So we are rethinking and assuming that the largest group you'll be able to get together with any predictability will be 50 or maybe 10 for 12 to 18 months. And lots of organizations, especially lots of churches, really should start thinking that way. Now, let me say, when you do this, it's overwhelming at first. And then ideally what happens is some creativity starts to appear and you realize actually there are things we can do. Now, this is especially at the level of teams and organizations. And in the in the article we wrote called Leading Beyond the Blizzard, kind of thinking beyond the immediate moment to the 12 to 18, but maybe 24 month horizon. We said, assume all the resources you've been able to count on go away, except for trust. You still have trust. There are people who you can call, they'll call you back. There are people you can ask to help, they will help. And what would you build if you were living under these constraints? Now, we don't know for sure, none of us know for sure exactly what the next 24 months are going to look like. It's not going to be 24 months of lockdown because it's just absolutely impossible for any society to sustain. It's more likely to be a lot of turbulence and unpredictability, but that may still have the effect that a lot of the things we could count on uh, just a few weeks ago We can't count on as we plan. After we've done all that initial creative work, there's still going to be so much to be anxious about. (laughs) So here's the deeper perspective that's been so helpful to me. And it's a very simple definition of anxiety. It's one of the most helpful things I've ever heard, that anxiety is imagining the future without Jesus in it. (laughs) So when I'm anxious and I start imagining the future, I am not imagining a future in which Jesus is present to me, to everyone I love, to all my needs. I'm imagining a future unlike my past, unlike even my present, where somehow I've taken him out of the picture and I start imagining and my mind goes crazy, right? But if I envision the future and realize whatever is going to happen and very, very hard things will happen in all of our lives, even if we wake up tomorrow and this was all a bad dream, you know what? The rest of your life will have a lot of suffering and challenge and Jesus is with us in it. To me that if I can 
take the time to reflect on that, place myself under that reality, it changes how I feel about the things I can control and the things I cannot control. And I want to be clear. I think that idea that creativity and innovation surface in the midst of restraint and tension. And I think that is how we lead through this. And that's true for our homes. That's true. Whether, you know, some of you are like, I don't lead an organization. This doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. Because whether you're a single in your house, I've watched Annie Downs, you know, on quarantine and be one of the most creative people I've ever seen. So you can be creative and innovative of how you're going to lead yourself, how you're going to lead your friends, how you're going to lead your people. This is something that all of us need to think about. And I know some people are naturally more creative than others. And so maybe could you give us just a little bit, Andy, of what it could look like for us to go through that process? That right now, there are some people listening to you like I felt when I read that and they're feeling panic. Like you're telling me I'm not gonna be next Christmas going to church still. Like they can't handle you right now. <laughs> so, And we don't know, you don't know, none of us know, all of us hope for the best. But I do think it's important that we readjust our expectations a little. What does it look like to be strategic right now? So if this were just a blizzard, we'd all just kind of grit our teeth, bear it, and just wait for it to be over. But if it's a season or even a couple of years, that requires something different. And here's one way I've been thinking about it. You're going to need a rule of life. You're going to need a way of living in the midst of these constraints, rather than just improvising continually, waiting for the restraints to go away so you can go back to normal. It's really possible that for quite a while, we don't go, go back to normal. So I just took a walk with my wife and we said, okay, what is our rule of life in this time? And we have, to be totally honest, have never had a particularly good rhythm of family prayer. There's some things our family is really good at. There are other things that it's embarrassing to say we are not very good at. And certainly a daily rhythm of family prayer we've not had. But our daughter is suddenly home from college. We are all living with these new stresses. And we realize we've got to end the day with prayer. So we are building in Compline, which is the Anglican service for the end of the day. And we talked about, okay, why haven't we been doing that? Like the last two weeks, we've kind of been in blizzard mode. And we haven't been doing it. So what needs to change so that we can build this rhythm into our, our, the beginning of our days with individual prayer and the end of our days with shared prayer? You need to think about rhythms of technology. We are all going to be just swamped with information and also with entertainment. And neither of those is especially good for us. So, you know, the, the monks, right? The idea of a rule of life comes from the monastic life. Uh, St. Benedict, kind of the founder of monasticism in some ways, came up with the first one. And I don't think it's so important exactly what's in the rule that you you and your family live by, that maybe you and your organization live by. And I think even non-Christian organizations can have sort of rules of life that we live by in this uh, season. But it's really important that you make some choices about what will help us stay sane, stay calm, stay connected, because the old patterns won't be available. And the default patterns when it's just snow day kind of mentality actually don't work very well in the long run. Like unlimited Netflix is not going to get us through this. <laughs> and right. like, Someone needed to hear that right now. I'm just going to say it. Somebody out there, you needed to hear him say that. You know, I, I'm reading this quote right now that says, I finished Netflix. You're not going to do it. Don't do it. It's not good for you. Exactly. Don't do it. Exactly. Our next door neighbor, you know, our schools were canceled a, a couple of weeks ago now. And I'm not sure I should have said this. So I think I set off a little bit of panic, but she said, you know, I guess these kids are home for two weeks. She's got a, like an eight-year-old, and 11-year-old. And I said, 
it's going to be August. Like it's going to be at least August. It's not going to be two weeks. And, and she looked at me just with horror. Right. And I, and I think her 11 year old was in earshot. I should not have done it, but it is true. It is going to be August. Hopefully it won't be longer than that for our public school systems, but it could be. The thing about kids is the more you entertain them, the more borable they become. That is increasing entertainment actually increases like how quickly kids get bored. So we've got to think about totally flipping that. So we entertain less so that over time, over the next few months, our kids get better and better at self-entertainment and less bored and less boreable or else we're all going to go utterly crazy. So Andy, do you think this is good for us? Do you think this is good for the church? Well, uh, no, <laughs> I, this is horrible grief and loss. I really honestly couldn't say yes to that at all in the first sense. We're going to lose so many things of value. We're going to lose businesses. People spent huge amounts of time and energy and love and care to build. We're going to lose people we care about. I doubt any of us gets out of this without someone we love either dying or being very, very sick. It's going to be very painful to live with them through. And our churches are really going to struggle. And we're going to lose people who we thought were with us, but we actually had no deep connection to them. And under these conditions, those connections are going to get thinner and thinner. Now, at the same time, the history of the church is that specifically plagues have been moments when there was a renewal of Christian practice. So there's two big anchor points in history to look at. And one is um, a little bit more recent. It's the Black Death that hit Europe in 1347 for the first time and came back for three centuries from time to time. 30% of the population died. We won't see anything like that from this virus, thanks be to God. What came out of that was a tradition called in Latin, the arts moriendi, which was a phrase that meant the art of dying. And it actually was a time when people began to think about how do you die well? And it turns out the way you die well is you live well. And there were actually these books written about how to prepare yourself for your death. Well, a person who's well-prepared for death is actually well-prepared to live well for however much time they have. And that was this incredibly important, in a funny way, kind of discipleship tool in the Middle Ages. Now, you go even further back, you have the plagues that swept through the Roman world over and over before the church was really established as the church of the empire, but when it was just little house churches of people. And plagues would hit the cities, and they would often have a 20 to 30% mortality rate. And the pagans uh, fled the cities, especially the pagan priests and the elites who supported them. They didn't know what caused it, but they knew enough to know if you left the city, you might be slightly safer. And the Christians decided, they kind of determined not to leave and instead to serve their neighbors. And in this amazing book called The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, argues that actually the, the that just the fact that the Christians stayed and cared for their neighbors when no one else would care for them, often at the cost of their own lives because they didn't really understand even what we know about hand washing and so forth. But just the fact that they nursed their neighbors when their neighbors were sick was one of the most important contributors to the growth of the church, the numerical growth of the church in those centuries. So it's not good that this is happening. And I hope it ends way quicker than we can envision now and with way less loss of life than we fear and that our churches are open and in many ways able to go back to what we were doing. At the same time, no matter how bad it is, God can work redemptively through us and we can look back on it and say, we all grew from this in amazing ways. And even our churches grew in the most important way, namely depth of trust in one another and in God, depth of love for God and for our neighbor this is our chance to see that happen. Well, and I love what you're saying 
first in how devastating this is because I think there's one thing that I keep telling my kids and I keep telling my good friends, which is it's okay that there's a grief and a sadness right now. Like this is not something that we should just be positive about and just pretend we're okay and make the best of it. Like there's a lot of real grief in my friend who his company, he had to let go 30 people in a day and they were, you know, weeping with us. And that's a grief that it's just, you know, there's just different griefs in this. And so I love that. But I also have a lot of questions about the second part of this, because it feels like for me, who is someone that loves to go do the next thing and cause good in the world, I feel paralyzed. Like I have felt at a loss as to even how to encourage people to help because the main ways we know how to serve and love at the church would be going against our commissioning to quarantine right now. So so let's talk about what that looks like right now and how to even approach being creative with our love in this time. Well, there are ways we can coordinate certain kinds of action. And I've heard really cool stories and we'll hear more. I mean, we work with entrepreneurs. So on the one hand, they're all super vulnerable at this moment. On the other hand, they're super nimble. They're able to change paths really quickly. And one of them is in upstate New York. They work with women uh, coming out of addiction and recovery. And they've had this whole manufacturing process that, that had to come to a total halt. And then they realized we could actually turn our whole like manufacturing floor into a place creating masks for wow. medical personnel. And they turned on a dime and did that. And only because, by the way, we had a conference call with our board chairs, this very, very clear thinker. And he said, look, you've got to rethink everything right now. He was one of the co-authors on the article that, that we wrote called Leading Beyond the Blizzard. And Kelly Lingard is the founder of that organization called Unshattered, hung up the phone, had a moment of total grief, like, oh, we're losing everything, another moment of total confusion and paralysis, and then a moment of insight. We could make masks, <laughs> and suddenly they're doing that. You know, one thing I would say is don't short-circuit the, the sense of grief and loss. It's actually okay to sit in that. I promise you redemption is on the other side of it, but it is on the other side. And I sat down two weeks ago now when I fully took on board what was happening probably two other times in my adult life have I wept the way I did for about 30 minutes. It was just deep, deep emotion. And it was absolutely essential. It was letting go of all the things I love to do that I'm not going to be doing for maybe years, uh, maybe never, you know. And then I was free to start imagining something different. And when you start imagining something different, you really have to ask, who have I got? <laughs> mm. Who could I call? Bandwidth really matters now in the sense that the more we can get rich interaction with each other, I would highly recommend people call their friends rather than text their friends, Zoom your friends rather than call your friends, unless you get totally burned out on Zoom, which those of us who are doing meetings all day are like, I just, let's just have a phone call, walk around the neighborhood if you're allowed to do that, and, and just hear someone's voice. I've been doing this with people I haven't talked to in years that I have deep relationships and out of those conversations, I, I can just promise you will come some little glimmer of what you can do. The other thing is Americans are activists and our leaders are activists. And it's not bad to be active. It's not always good to be an activist. And this is a bit of divine humbling for us. I mean, our brothers and sisters around the world know what we're like. And when they're honest, they tell us, oh, yeah, you Americans. You know, I mean, I remember this pastor in Nairobi who said, oh, yeah, we have a wall uh, at our church that we let every American group paint because Americans love to paint walls. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, what he was essentially saying is we really wish you would just come and be with us and learn mm -hmm. from us and learn mm -hmm. with us. But we know you Americans, you like to act. You like So here's the wall that just gets repainted each time. Wow. So this is a season where you can't paint the wall, 
it's a time to be deepened in wow. your relationship with God and other people and wait for the moment when you can act again. And maybe when we act again, it'll be a little more contemplatively and a little less activistically, activistically in the way we're tempted to be. Dude, you can make up words right now. That's what that works. Or, <laughs> or is that a real word? I don't know. <laughs> This is a great humbling, the whole thing. It feels like, wow, like we thought we had a lot more control than we have. It's scary. And my first reaction to it is anxiety. And then my next reaction is peace of, and that's a good thing, right? Like we don't want to be the boss. We don't want to be in charge of something like this. And so I guess what does it look like to receive this circumstance on one hand and then also do good with it and, and take initiative with it and not just watch Netflix with it. You know, it's that tension of no control, but yet there are some things we can control. The phrase that comes to mind is actually from Acts 2. <laughs> you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes on you. But until then, wait in the city. You know, Acts 2 happens in a very interesting moment. So they've been through the absolute dereliction of seeing their Lord crucified and buried. They've had this undeniable, by the time Acts 2 comes around, unmistakable confirmation that he is no longer dead. But then also, he's ascended into heaven and he's no longer there. So they're they're in this really weird moment, right, of we saw him die. (laughs) We're still feeling the trauma of that. We know he is now alive, though there's a lot of mystery in those appearances. And they're not like simple, like definitely, you're certainly not in control of when the risen Jesus shows up. You're in a room praying and suddenly there he is. And then suddenly he's gone. You're walking down the road. Suddenly someone's talking to you and your hearts are burning. And he breaks the bread and then he disappears, right? So you are totally out of control. And then he's like done these 40 odd days of teaching that kind of help them understand something about where, they're at, where they are. And then he's gone. Mm. <laughs> and he says, wait in the city until you're clothed with power. Maybe that sounds too spiritual. I'm worried that I'm being, I'm over-spiritualizing this. And, and I certainly don't mean to do it in some like simple jigsaw puzzle way where, you know, this is how it's going to work out. You know, just wait. Except isn't that the moment we're in? We do still believe Jesus is risen and is Lord and is reigning even over our circumstances right now. But we are so not in control. We've completely been emptied of our our sense of control, which was always an illusion. Control is always an illusion. Outside of mechanical systems, the world is not a mechanical system. Other people aren't a mechanical system. Our work in the world is not mechanics. So control was never ours in the first place. But we're in this heightened moment of attention. And I think for each of us, in our spheres of responsibility, our home and our workplace and and as citizens of this country, that in a way what we're called to do is sort of prepare ourselves, pay attention, and wait to be clothed with power. (laughs) And that's going to, I don't think that's going to come in one form for each person. Um, What happened for me after that intense grief uh, and what it was, I mean, this will sound in some ways very trivial maybe, but I'm a speaker. Like most of my work, certainly my favorite part of my life is when I'm speaking to, it doesn't have to be a huge group, but just a group of people. (laughs) And I was realizing I don't get to do this for months, years, or maybe a long time. But I, I got up from that and, and, just over the next day, it became clear, okay, I think we need to write this piece about the blizzard, the winter, and the ice age. And so I went to our CEO, Dave, and our board chair, Kurt, we started talking about it. And out of that came this piece that was helpful, right? 
would I rather be speaking to a group of real people in, in a room, you know, and uh, playing the piano so we could all sing? Yes. But this was the thing for me to do that day. We just have to keep putting ourselves in that position of waiting to be clothed with power from on high and then see what that looks like each day. It's going to look different. So I think one of your gifts is that you're a futurist. I think you think about the future really well. And I think that's why two different times through this process, you have really spoken to Zach and I and moved us to more future thinking. What do you see when you look six months to a year down the road? And and maybe I should say, what do you see on the other side of all this for the church? Like, how do we come out of this? And how do we look different? And hopefully for the better. Well, I should say... I don't know. I'd, I'm not sure I'm a futurist. I actually think of myself, I think it's it's impossible to see the future, but we can at least see the moment we're in clearly. <laughs> so actually what I try is, I think it's actually quite an achievement just to live in the present moment rather than living your, in kind of your imagination of the past. But there is a really hopeful scenario out of this, even if a, a relatively worse case happens epidemiologically and economically, there is a, a hopeful scenario for the church. It is very possible that the largest groups we're going to be able to reliably gather for quite a while will be around 10 people. Well, that's what we used to call small group ministry. Wow. I like where this is going. This is good. It's a completely inadequate word in this moment. And what we need is a word more like the the idea that, that was in the Greco-Roman world that the church first arose in, which was the idea of the household. Household was not just a nuclear family, but it was a relatively small group of people gathered around a home, often with a family at the heart, um, though this could vary uh, to some extent. But it included all kinds of people who weren't necessarily biologically related to the pater familias, right? The head of the household. Well, the early Christians begin to organize themselves into, into households and they think of themselves as the household of God. Now, it's not a Greco-Roman household. The Greco-Roman household was this kind of patriarchal, power play, status-driven world where the paterfamilias was on top and could commit violence against anyone who chose. The first Christians rejected all of that. They rewrote the rules for husbands and wives, parents and children, even masters and slaves in pretty astonishing ways. And they said, we are now going to build a different kind of household. And we get a glimpse of it in Romans 16. It's this long list of greetings to the church in Rome. But who's sending the greetings? Well, it's the people who are with Paul. And we find out their names when Tertius, who's the scribe, says, I, Tertius, who wrote, to, wrote down this letter, greet you, Romans, and the Lord. We're staying in the home of Gaius. Erastus, the city treasurer, is here. And the brother Quartus is here as well. So who's there? You've got two guys named Tertius and Quartus. Those are the Latin words for third and fourth. Number three and number four are their names Mm. because they didn't matter. They were slaves. They were not the firstborn. So they've been given these names that basically mean, oh, you're number three, you're number four. But then you've got Gaius who actually owns the home. He's a paterfamilias. He has quite a bit of status in the world outside. You've got the city treasurer, but then we know you've got Paul, this Jewish itinerant rabbi. We know Phoebe is there because she's the one who's going to take the letter to Rome, read it and interpret it as she reads it to the church in Rome. So think about this little group of people. They qualify for the quarantine rule, right? Mm. But they they look nothing like any other household in that city. If the neighbors walk by and look in at who's around that table and treating one another as brother and sister, they would be completely freaked out. And either they'd say, I want no part of that, or they'd say, could I be a part of a household like that? Is there another world? Is there another kind of household? The hopeful outcome for this is that we come out of this having rebuilt everything we do 
on the level of community at which you can be truly known, which is about mm -hmm. 10 people. You can't be known in a yes. room of a thousand people, but you can be known in a room of 10. And so each of us who have homes are gonna to need to figure out who's in our household, who do we open it up to, who doesn't have anywhere else to go. And, and household by household, we're going to rebuild what it means to do church. We have to, and we get to. This is so moving to me because the next book I was writing prior to any of this happening and I'm working on currently, which I had to pause because I was like, it's just like you, what's happening and what am I even writing to come a year from now? It was on, we were built to live in villages. And that village life is really the the way that we are uniquely crafted to live and that most everyone alive today still lives in villages. Most every generation that's ever existed lives in villages, minus Rome, minus some of the big cities. So when you lose that type of living, but my conundrum in the project was how do you do that in Dallas, you know? And I mean, I know you can, and I've worked really hard. Zach and I have worked really hard to build that type of life here. And I know it's possible, but man, I mean, he just caused it to happen. And I think you're right. I think that that loss of large group gathering feels like such a huge loss right now to all of us. But there is something about what you're saying about that smaller group of people and how it works better. It brings about a fuller life if we could choose our, our smaller group, pick our people and do deeper life with them. And, and that's possible no matter what. If we get back to normal in two weeks, which isn't likely, but hopeful, you could still build that type of life. And I think you're right. It is biblical. It matters. And we had to do this anyway. I mean, we have been right. living in the loneliest society in the right. history of humanity. And we had to rebuild these. And I think you're right. It's not just the group of 10. It's, it's the village around them. But it's never, I mean, there are 120 people in the room at Pentecost. Like, that's all it takes to change the world. Now, that's slightly above the CDC guidelines, <laughs> but not much, right? And I mean, our, our huge gatherings, they have certain value. I'm not sure they actually matter for growing the church in, in the most important ways. I think the church grows at the speed of real relationship, real love, and that's best expressed in pretty small environments. And we now just get this amazing moment where something that we would have had to figure out how to build it in spite of Dallas. <laughs> now you get to build it in Dallas where everyone in Dallas is asking, oh, how do we do this? Well, and to speak to those, if you're listening, that that love their megachurch or that are part of one, I am too. And my church is so good at that. If anything, that's where I've learned it from is from a very large church that pushed Yes, it's possible to have a mega church and for that to exist within it. It's possible to live in a city and to experience community like we're, what we're talking about within it. You just have to be super intentional and you have to build a life that is restraint, <laughs> includes restraint, because we all could have endless numbers of shallow, loose associations rather than what we're both talking about, which is really 10 people that you covenant to do life with. And that takes choice and that takes cutting a lot of other things out. So that can happen now. And it's kind of forced to happen now because let's be real, both of us have probably been on a Zoom call with over 50 people. It's not that effective. <laughs> it does not work. It doesn't work. So, you know, we're forcing it right now. Like right now, if you're going to have a conversation, which we hope you do after this show, we hope that you'll get on Zoom and discuss this with friends. We have conversation cards for you. You can download it at ifgathering.com. But pick your few, you know, whatever number that is for you. Um, pick your few because there is something about being known and knowing 
that you just can't do with 50 people. So, so who are your people? And choosing those people and doing life with them starting now, that can happen with technology, praise God. What would we do without technology? It'd be a little bit lonelier than, than what we're experiencing, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy, for joining us. This is so helpful. I love how you help us think about where we are and what we can do with it. And I'm encouraged. I hope you guys are encouraged too. You know, I know for a second, it's going to feel like you're going to get off and you're going to show this to somebody. You're going to, you're going to make them watch it and go, oh my gosh, he said 12 months to 18 months. Y'all, we don't know what, what we do know is that it will not hurt us to be creative and to plan ahead and to imagine what it looks like to lead our people in this season, no matter what. And, and being prepared to lead for a longer road ahead is what we need to be doing anyway. So thank you so much, Andy, for helping us do it. Thank you, Jenny. So great to talk. Hey, I just want to say thank you because so many of you have really jumped into this community and you've listened to every episode and some of you are new and I just want to welcome you. And I'll tell you what, what has meant the most to us is you guys leaving reviews. We read every single one of them. And honestly, some of you guys have me in a little puddle crying because they are so meaningful. So thank you so much for doing that. And those of you that have been a part of this, go leave a review. I'm telling you, it means something. It means something to us, but it also means something to help other people find it and know what it's about. Mm -hmm.